Welcome to Sheer Clarity, the show that will teach you about leadership by attraction, building self-awareness, and how to develop exceptional self-management abilities that will help you become more reflective, more open, more trusting, and more engaging with the people who matter to you most. In other words, make you a better leader. Head on over to SheerClarity.com where you can learn more, subscribe to the show for free, and connect on social media. And now, here's your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Hey there, everyone. Jay Kevin McHugh here. It's another episode of Sheer Clarity. We're having an interview today with a good friend of mine, a guy who's been a friend and a client. His name is Ryan Niles. He is the CEO of Niles Industrial Coatings. Now, this is a generational business. Ryan's third generation. The company was uh, founded in 1958 by his grandfather, and his grandfather had three sons, and they all worked in the business and brought it to another level. And then Dan's Niles is Ryan's dad, and he uh, got Ryan in the driver's seat in 2002. So Ryan's been at this now for, what is that, Ryan, 17 years or even 18 years. So I just want him to be the guy who tells you all about the business. As you know, Sheer Clarity is a podcast for leaders. The focus is on something we call leadership by attraction. We're always looking for that one thing that sort of accelerates and differentiates somebody as a leader by attraction. And in in my view, it is sheer clarity about who you are, your values, your hardwiring, your emotional state. It's all about your familiarity with your own internal terrain. And from that place, you get to have some level of comfort. And from there, you can start attracting others because they are actually drawn to you. There's something about you. Ryan is absolutely one of those guys, so I'm going to welcome him to the show. Ryan, good morning, bud. Nice to see you. So I'm looking out the window there, and it's a good old cloudy day in Michigan, and it's cloudy here. We're used to the clouds, right? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. So here, here's the way I like to do this when I have a guest on. I'd like you to just at least talk a little bit about today, like who you are today, the role you play today. Tell us a little bit more about the company and actually what it does. It's actually very, very powerful in its scale and its scope. It's growing like crazy. So tell us a little bit about that, what you do, what the company does, and then we'll kind of slide into the, the meat and potatoes of the interview. So today, I really run kind of two companies. One's Niles Industrial Coatings, about a $45 million painting contracting company, painting and roofing. Last year, I think we were in 16 states. So we did some fuel tanks out at LAX. Uh, we're painting Raider Stadium in Las Vegas. To we've got a you know big crew up at Dow Chemical on any given day. And then we have a non-union scaffold company that is, I think, in seven states last year, a little less travel. Uh, about 60% of their works within Michigan, 40% is traveling without. And those are really the two companies that, that I run on a day to day. You know, really for me, you know, our company's purpose is really just unlocking people's potential. And that's really kind of what every day I wake up and say, what can I do to create better leaders, to unlock their potential, to be the best dad they can be, the best father they can be, the best leader in our company. And, and that's really kind of my focus and purpose on, on any given day. So that's interesting. So you're actually looking at the whole person. and Absolutely. Tell me about that. Like, what do you do to sort of get to know the whole person? And how does that flow down through the whole company? Because that's a great and powerful uh, approach to people. You know, I think, Kevin, it really, you were probably one of the, the triggers that really started a, a lot of kind of our leadership conversation and journey, you know, back in, what was that, 2000, 
13, 14 yeah, time frame. at least five or six years ago. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we did is, is, you know, you came in and you actually did the personality profiles and we did it all levels all the way down to, you know, our scaffold foreman and our leaders. And I, I know at the time you thought that was interesting. You hadn't done it all the way to that yeah, level. Yeah, They were amazing too, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. But I think to your point is really just kind of people understanding themselves and understanding their strengths and their weaknesses and, you know, and, and focusing on those strengths and bettering them and really focusing on having partners that somebody else's strengths is somebody else's weakness and just kind of having the confidence and comfort to kind of share those vulnerabilities and bring the team. And in our case, you know, I, I really push it, the family together and we all really work hard to, to work as a team slash family and unlock our potential, unlock what we're the best at and work together at that. So that's been kind of the driving focus of, of that for the last five years. And I think I'm, I'm getting more and more clarity on, you know, how to do that, you know, as a leader. Yeah. So, so that's kind of my day to day. I mean, right now I'm preparing for, we're doing a retreat with the scaffold team on Friday. And so today will be a big part of that preparation is preparing for that talk on Friday to get that kind of kicked off. Yeah. Do you remember what the reactions were when you first started introducing this to the team? You know, prior to me coming out there, it was, I'm always curious what people are thinking when here comes the boss and he's rallying us up. We're going for this day or two day retreat and we're going to, what are we going to do? We're going to gaze at our navels and we're going <laughs> to, is this too touchy feely? Do you remember that like the reactions at first, when you first started telling the guys we're getting together? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I, I remember, I mean, just first they, you know, they had to fill out their profile, you know, online ahead of time and just getting everybody to do that was, was a, it was a challenge, right? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? We, Today, you want us to come in and spend 20 minutes, you know, filling something on the computer like we built scaffold, boss. What, what does this have to do with anything, you know, that, that you're looking for here? And, you know, and then when, I think when they got up there and, you know, you spent the time with them to start diagnosing each of them, I think you had them all like, holy shit, Kevin's a, you know, he's a for fortune teller. He knows exactly what's going on, how people are wired. And I think the one thing we all found interesting back then was specifically like our scaffold guys, most of them are they're very high C, very high compliance, Yes, and, which makes sense because if they aren't, people die. You know, they if they die. don't put that last yep. piece in part in, you know, and our, and our safety record is absolutely amazing. But now when we're hiring, we specifically look and make sure they have those high Cs because if not, they're not going to fit in. You know, they're going to weed themselves out and we're more efficient at hiring today. You know, now that we have a better understanding of, you know, the type of person we're looking to fill, fill those roles. Yeah. I want, I want to tell the listeners what we're referring to because everybody in business at some point or another has done some kind of behavioral assessment and probably the most well-named or known name is called DISC. It stands for the four constructs. They measure dominance, influence, steadiness, and compliance. And what Ryan's referring to is the compliance score. People have that in above average amounts tend to be very, very detail conscious and like precision and right and wrong. And they can actually be perfectionist at times, but they pay attention to the rules and the regulations. And I don't know if we talked enough about what the business actually does because we slid right into this stuff. But I want you to picture if you've ever driven by a football stadium and the magnitude of it and the size of it, and imagine that whole thing needs to be painted. It's not just paint, paint. It's a coating. It's industrial. There's huge, like complex planning to get organized. And he does plants. If you go by an oil refinery and you look at the maze of wire, of pipes and tanks and towers, 
all that stuff gets rusty, needs to be coated, painted. So his guys are absolutely critically at risk because they're climbing high up several stories. Oftentimes, they're building scaffolding upon which they can do the work. And so when he talks about safety and he said, if they're not careful, people die, he's not kidding. It's very serious. And I have a a lot of respect for all the companies who are in businesses where people are literally at risk for serious injury just by the nature of the work. And so when we were doing the original planning, we, we did these assessments. It's a self-knowledge tool. And um, Ryan had just already outlined that he's discovered this high compliance, having that naturally in somebody who's naturally kind of cautious to do it right, that actually is an advantage when people are coming into this workplace that he has. So I just wanted to amplify what when people are hearing this conversation, what we're talking about, this DISC assessment. I use it a lot for everybody. I'll underscore one other thing that I think you just made a point for all the listeners. If you've ever thought that this is only exclusively some kind of assessment you would use in the senior level, you just heard from a guy who said, nope, it works at all the levels. Yeah. And, you know, and I think for us, it was really valuable because a lot of the, the craftsmen haven't spent any time on education since maybe they got out of high school. So for us, when we started really five, six years ago with you, we really started making a focus towards we've got two retreats a year and, you know, really focus on upgrading their skills and, and, and so forth and that kind of continual learning. It took probably three years of me dragging them up the hill. Yes. But now today people are, you know, really excited about it. I mean, I know like the retreat we've got planned this Friday, we bring in speakers and they're really looking forward to what are they going to learn and bringing that connectivity to, to the team and the family of now it's fun because the last few years, our productivity has just increased substantially and it's created an opportunity for everybody to make more money. Bonuses are better. We now have more money to invest in education again. And so it's just we're in that positive upward spin where there's been a lot of times in my career I've been in the negative downward spin where you don't have enough money, you don't have enough resources, you don't have enough time. And it's really fun when it's going the other direction and, and it's exciting. And I think it all started back, you know, when we really first understand people's personality profiles. So, well, I appreciate that. That's, uh, I wasn't expecting such a great plug, but uh, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, for sure. So, I always enjoy trying to get my listeners to sort of understand more about how people learn about themselves and how people get this thing called self-awareness. And I just maybe, could you just riff on that a little bit? I'd, I'd love to hear about from the time you were a kid to the present moment, you were imprinted, you were learning. And a lot of people today arrive at a place, they're in their 30s and their 40s, and they're not really sure of why they behave the way they do or why they act the way they do or why they get triggered emotionally. And I'm always telling people, you've got to do some work going back. You have to look at the way you grew up. You have to look at the imprinting from your folks. And so I'd like you to maybe tell a little bit of the story about you and growing up and what you were learning and, and what those lessons were like and the hard lessons, if there were any along the way. But how did you get to this place where you appreciate this idea of self-awareness and self-knowledge and relationship and connection, all the good stuff. You know, I think it started for me, it was just kind of having confidence in something. And for me, it was skiing at a young age. I started snow skiing when I was five. And I think the independence of snow skiing, we skied at a small private resort in Northern Michigan called that Seagull Club. 
And the fact that I remember being six years old and I could go ski by myself. And I mean, you wouldn't let your kids ever do anything like that, but I had the kind of the confidence just to, to do that. And I really excelled at skiing and, and I kind of brought that over to other parts of my life, I think in later years. I mean, school was always hard for me. I, I don't know that I realized it when I was in school, but I'm definitely ADD and uh, a little dyslexic as well. So school was, you know, I had to work really hard for my grades. High school was hard. College was even harder. I went down the path of uh, pre-med was where I thought I was going to go. I thought I was going to be a physician. I actually made it through Michigan State's medical technology program, was waitlisted into their DO program. At the same time, I'd always worked for the business. So I had a lot of uh, kind of grit and determination. Always had money because I worked hard for the business all the time. So I mean, even when I was in college, I had other jobs. So money was always kind of important. I never wanted to kind of rely on my my dad for that, even though I was very fortunate. Dad definitely helped me with college. But just was kind of always driven at a young age for both money and work ethic. And I think for me, it was figuring out what I wanted to do. And I, and I always wanted to help people. And I thought I was going to be a physician. You know, I didn't get into medical school. Like I said, I was waitlisted. And, and at that time was when my dad actually sold the business. He said, you know, listen, you're never going to see a deal like this unfold. They're picking us up on a private jet next week, going to Chicago. You should come. So I ended up doing that trip met the CEO of the company that bought our business, my dad's family business at the time. In the next two years, he ended up hiring me and we did acquisitions with about 11 companies in two years. So I was working for a company called Kenny Industrial at the time, learned a ton about acquisition M&A. And then actually I was laid off in November of 2002. That same month is when I really kind of restarted the business and so forth. At the time, my dad was still employed by the other company, had a non-compete. So the first week in business, I got a letter from uh, the attorney saying, should your parents give you any money? They'll be in violation of their non-compete. So I really had to bootstrap it when I got oh, started. Oh, man. And I think a lot of, you know, for me, it's looking back, I have a lot of grit and determination of kind of not giving up. And I think a lot of it was probably because school was hard and reading. I was always a slow reader and I still am a slow reader to this day. I mean, I hate reviewing contracts. If, if I have to review a contract, I got to carve out a lot of time and I've read a thousand of them, but that's my least favorite thing to do that thankfully we're we're now a size company that I can assign those to somebody and, and, and we're there. But there was 10 years that that wasn't the case. I had to grind through those contracts. But I think the fact, you know, for me, it's, you know, kind of that grit to grind through, started the business, had the, had the grit to do that, had the grit to make it through 08 and 09, which was absolutely a miserable time. I, I can tell you, I felt like a broad through those years. That's a podcast in itself, though, 08 and 09, that was just miserable. But I think that once I came through the other side of all those things, and we've really been on the journey, I joined YPO, which is a, an organization of kind of lifelong learning education. And, and I joined YPO in 2012, and that really started me on my journey of really focusing on my leadership and kind of getting comfortable with who I am. And I'm a very transparent guy. I mean, my wife always gives me grief. We'll be at dinner. And she's like, why do you tell everybody all the bad stuff? And I oh, think I'm not yeah. afraid of that because that's where I, you learn the most. And I tell people I've made a ton of, I'm not that I'm that smart. I've just made a ton of mistakes and I learned quickly. And I think my fear factor to try things now that I've achieved some success, I look back and think, God, that was crazy. I can't believe I did some of those things. <laughs> you know, I had um, a YPO by the name of Lisa Stein on about two, three weeks ago, and she said the same thing. And then I actually think I also heard it in my first interview with a guy by the name of Dave Maney. This idea of making mistakes as your primary learning tool keeps coming up as a theme. And I'm trying to sort of frame this up as 
when there's repetition like this and you keep hearing and I want the listeners to sort of dial in that trying something and failing at it is essential to your learning. It's where you learn the most. And it's also where you build confidence. And I feel like a lot of the organizations I encounter get to this place. I don't know when it happens, but suddenly it gets stifled. And there's fear of making mistakes. And so what does that do? Slows everybody down. We double check and re-double check and try to write a policy or procedure for everything. I think it's just part of being normally human is to screw up and to make a mistake. Are you conscious of this in the company? Do you tell people you'd rather them try and fail? I mean, do you have a way of communicating that? How do, how do you think it rolls? Or is it just sort of implicit that you're not going to get penalized for trying here at our place? couple things. Yesterday, every Tuesday up at Dow Chemical, we usually have 100, and, 100 plus, between 100 and 150 of our employees that have a safety meeting at two, Tuesdays at 7 o'clock. And I try to attend, I probably make it to 40 of those a year. And the one I had yesterday was just this exact topic. I said, when was the last time you guys did something that you were 90% sure it was going to work? But there's a chance that it wasn't going to work. But like, you know, but it's a new idea. You haven't done it that way before. Whatever that is that may be more efficient, but you're not, you know, you're not 100% sure. I'm like, I challenge all you guys to really think that way. And if it doesn't work, like, hey, you tried it and pull back in. And I challenged the team as well, said, hey, if we at least start out with a conversation of, well, that's the way we've always done it, or, hey, we've been doing it this way the last couple of years, it works. You know, that's where I kind of take it to the next level and say, hey, anytime a company triples, every process that you used to do is no longer valid. I said, so the growth that our company's had, if there's any process we've been doing for longer than two years, and that's the way we've been doing it, I can tell you there's a more efficient way to do it. So I'm always challenging the team from, from that perspective. I would say, you know, weekly, we have that conversation. One other things that I do is I do a new hire orientation. Usually anytime an employee comes into the company, uh, I spend about three hours with them myself. I do the training and it's part of the thing that that I love, but I I think it sets the tone for their employment and their partnership with the family and with the company. And that's something that I've been doing that for about two and a half years now, and I'm getting really good feedback. And and one of the topics that I share is I, I get pretty transparent with my failures and almost confidential really to a point I, I really get vulnerable with them and share a lot of the things that I've screwed up, you know, that's allowed me to achieve the success we have. And I challenge all of them that, Hey, I, I remember 08 and 09 when not only could I not make my house payment, I wasn't sure how I was going to make payroll. So when these guys have challenges, like I understand those and, and we got to push ourselves to, to be better and take risks and grow and, and we can learn. I mean, there's a great, just a five minute video from Danzel Washington from one of his speeches that, you know, it's, Fail thing, I think, is the topic of it. It's a great resource that I use. It's great. So, if there are people listening to the podcast, I'd be curious how you would answer them if they said to you, Well, I really wish I had you as my boss, but I don't. And I got a crappy boss who's always worrying about mistakes, or I don't feel inspired to make a mistake. What should somebody like that do? How would you have them approach that or think about it? Or what advice would you have for them? I mean, I think that's when you got to look at kind of the value of the company. You can always have a crappy boss, but it doesn't mean the whole company is that way. Is there any other resources within the company that you can go to to kind of see if they can support your thinking and kind of coach and mentor you? And if there's not in the company, sometimes there's just toxic companies that don't have the values that want to grow and learn. 
and they're completely comfortable with uh, kind of the stagnated way of just punch in, punch out type uh, mentality. And if that's the case, I challenge them to go find a new place to work. Love it. I think this is great. When I'm doing these, I always make a note or two so that at the end I can sort of list out what I call the moments of sheer clarity that I get from the guest. And I think that's a great piece of advice. I'll, I'll just repeat it while it's fresh here. So if you are out there working today and you're listening to the podcast and you're hearing that maybe you work in a job or a situation where there's a lot of emphasis on caution, don't make a mistake, you're afraid to make a mistake, it could be just maybe this is a boss at this point in your career and that's the way they roll. But as Ryan is saying, step back and take a look at the whole company and evaluate the company. And does the company have the values? Does it have the orientation for you for growth? Does it put some kind of a special emphasis on it's okay to create and innovate and make a mistake? We're here to grow and we're here to learn. And if you sense that in the company, you may have to look around outside of the current boss situation you have and see if there's some other places that you can learn and at least kind of hunker down until you get the promotion or the chance to get to another opportunity within the company. And if none of that looks like it's happening, then you may actually have to make the option that means moving with your feet to get to a place where you get to blossom and you get to grow. It's really about the culture, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the hard thing is too, with humans, change is so hard. So for anybody that is in that that end job or dead end boss, just getting that courage to change. I mean, I just really empathize with them. And I was having this, I like this story because it's so simple, but I was having a conversation with an employee that I wanted him to change something. He just was really kind of, no, this is the way we've got to do it. And I was just kind of scratching my head, like, how do I get this guy to see it? And at the same time, I was in a situation where it was Valentine's Day. My wife bought me some new exercise shorts. You'll love this story, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now, meanwhile, I have exercise shorts going all the way back to high school. So I, so I probably have eight pair, maybe even 10. Like, so I don't need any more exercise shorts. Let's just establish that Ryan does not need any more shorts. But my wife went and she says, you know, I went and got these specific shorts. They're Lululemon and they've got a liner. In it. None of your shorts have a liner. She's like, I asked the guy and they sell 10 to one this short versus any other short. And so she was really excited to give them to me. And I was like, okay, great. They literally were sitting on my dresser for probably like two weeks. The second week, Kim's like, hey, are are you going to wear those shorts? Or do you want me to take them back and get you a pair without the liner to match the other 10 pair that I already have? I'm like, no, no, you know, I'll I'll get to them. And like I said, it was like the third week that I'm having this conversation with an employee. And I'm like, why won't he change? And I'm sitting there looking at myself saying, it will take me six seconds to try on those shorts. Six seconds. They're there. They're in my bedroom. All I have to do is put one leg in behind the other. I can try them on. So I literally, I got done with the meeting that I was having in my office and I called my wife and said, listen, take those shorts, rip the tag off. She's, well, I'm actually like returning them today. I'm getting you the ones without the line. I'm like, no, I am committed. I can afford the, you know, $70 overpriced Lululemon shorts. I'm all in, rip the tag off. And I'm like, and I'm going to try them, you know, when we get home. And so like literally the next morning I did my exercise routine. I put on these shorts. They were amazing. They hold all your stuff in place. I could do this front to back core workout thing. Absolutely amazing. The the reason they sell 10 to 1 is they are that much better. But I just think humans, we are so afraid of change. It was six seconds. It was there in front of me. I looked at them every single day for 21 days, and I couldn't find the time 
to put these shorts on. So I think like, you know, when people's trying to find the courage to look for a new job, I mean, those are big decisions. When we as leaders and I'm coaching change, I'm challenging people to change and we can't do it. We just have to understand our hired wiring. We hate change. We hate change at all costs. And I just think that's such a simple story of guys like you and I that are studying change and studying leadership. And it's right there in front of us sometimes. And that's we, right. You know, that's our gr- hard wiring as humans, we, we don't want to change. That's so people have to change story. jobs. You know, it's such a courageous thing. It's such a conscious thing. You got to really think about it and work hard at that. You know, in, in that nice little story, there was great transparency, by the way. Thank you for that. I think what happens is you even said, I really didn't have the time to try them on realizing it it was only six seconds, but that's the excuse in your head. It really is an excuse. I don't have the time. It's really not a time issue. It was, I really, I love my comfort pocket and I don't feel like dealing with it. I've already decided I'm not going to like it. Imagine how many times that happens a day in a workplace. I've actually already decided, don't even bother telling me. I don't want to know. Why? Change is hard. Why is it hard? Why is it so hard? Because there's there's enough change coming at us, I think, on a routine basis that we like to carve out certain areas where this is the comfort pocket. And almost like I want to retreat to my old shorts. They just work. There's enough other stuff I'm changing. Leave my shorts alone. (laughs) For sure. And I got to confess, I can see it. One of the things that I'm always working on with the folks that I coach that are in the age category, let's call it 60, 65, even older, you do start to get a little more, I guess the word rigid is there. So I'm like super conscious. I don't I don't want that to ever happen to me. And I tell everybody, I tell my kids in particular, please, if I'm getting too hung up on being the old man, let me know. And they do. They don't hesitate. They don't hold back. We've been truth tellers in this family for a long time actually to our detriment. I I introduced them after I met and married Mary to the idea that not everything has to be said. There is a place for zipping it and being compassionate and kind. And I appreciate learning that from her. So I have a, a question about your own learning curve in terms of values. I'm assuming there are values that go back to your grandfather. And I'd like you to talk about what you think those are and what those were like and sort of pay some tribute to what was in place that probably is still in place today. Two things that my grandpa, like I never really worked with my grandpa. I worked with my dad's oldest brother, my Uncle Dale. And Uncle Dale, I think the two things was just kind of pretty much grittiness. I mean, he never gave up on anything. He worked every day, all the time. He loved what he did. So he he wasn't doing it out of suffering. He did it because he really enjoyed it. And two, I used to tease him that, you know, when we would figure a project or estimate a project, I used to call him, he wasn't an estimator, he's an exactimator. And I think it's just that attention to detail. If you're going to do something, do it right. I think are kind of two of the, the values that I think today, as a kid, I didn't appreciate those. I mean, maybe the grittiness I did, but definitely not that you have to measure everything and be that accurate. I think you, when you really want to be great at something, be great at it, I think are two of those longstanding values. I mean, I think for me, you know, you, you kind of asked the question you know, about the leadership journey. One of the things too that comes into my head that I wanted to share with you is last year, it was in the fall, we had an opportunity to go to Harvard and, and there was a class that we had. And one of the cases we studied was, it's called the Rob Parsons case. And that case was more uh, over leadership over management. And one of the things that hit me like a brick was that I'm a really good leader and I'm a 
very marginal manager that I come in with creative ideas and I'm ready to go. But my management is I'm not always following up on things, kind of just expect people to kind of execute because I have a high standard. And, and so those are some things that for me, I'm, I'm now working on how do I develop my management style more and, and realize that my leadership's strong, but it's more bringing in the management systems and places, you know, processes and so forth for the business. So that was something else that I wanted to throw out there. What's your um, hardest people lesson over the, the career you have? I'm pointing the, uh, the podcast at anyone in leadership at any level and this idea of being attractive and I feel like there are times during leadership that there's a challenge and some of them stand out because there are great lessons in it. I was curious if you have anyone. I've had some interviews where they said, actually, I've got a million of them and there isn't one that stands out. So I'm always curious to ask the question, do you have any? You know, I don't think I have one specific. I think I've won probably more along the lines of had a million. I'd say at the end of the day, I'm quick to kind of care and trust for people. And a lot of times they'll let you down, you know, at the end of the day, but it's one of those, I got to keep reminding myself every time, every time one person lets me down, two people exceed kind of your expectations with giving them kind of enough leeway to really unlock their potential. As we say here at the company, we had a certain employee, I know third, fourth quarter that was really struggling and we call it self-selecting. We really sat down, tried to give him some really positive feedback of where he could change some opportunities, where he could get some opportunity to grow as a manager some resources he should potentially consider both books and potentially a class. And he chose not to do those things. And he resigned the first of the year. And we kind of knew that was coming, right? But it's more one of those, you want to give those people that last chance. I think it's a small percent of time that people actually kind of make that commitment to make a change in their life, to really go and improve or go read a book or go try to better themselves. We're always challenging them to do that. And I'd say we continue to do that because at the time that the one employee does it, man, they come back and they thank you. And they, they have such gratitude that that one kind of oversees the 10 negative ones that are out there. So it's really a positive experience. So that's where we just kind of keep focusing on the, on the positives. Yeah. That's a, a sheer clarity moment for sure. The cost of trust includes the occasional letdown. You'll give it to somebody and you know what you shouldn't have, or it was a mistake. And then you said this beautifully, at least for every one that I do, I've got two who shine and who don't let me down. And it probably even a better ratio than that. I believe that when you have a trust as a leader like that and you approach that, that kind of trusting happens all the way down. That's the message. Like give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Go in with the positive intention. Go in with trust. It's already there. I'm going to trust you from the get-go. A lot of times I've had to coach guys who actually have some kind of betrayal in their backgrounds and they're not in tune with it. And so they actually lead with a sense of protection. And so they actually lead with, you'll have to earn my trust. So without knowing it, they actually do little tests. They're trust tests. They set it up so that Somebody didn't communicate with them or didn't copy them on an email. And before you know it, they've told the story. And the story is in their head is based on the story of the betrayal from childhood. <laughs> like somebody's going to screw me. And eventually they go through enough protection that the self-fulfilling prophecy takes, takes over. Eventually somebody will let you down. But it's the character of the person that will sustain you during that. Like if I know it's a person of good character and I already trust that part, well, if they let me down on 
a performance or they made a mistake, we're fine. It's when the trust with the character piece starts to creep in. So I have, I can't believe that time has flown by already. So I'm going to start wrapping up here. I'm going to walk you through some of the things that I heard so I can summarize for the listeners. And I'm going to hit you with my big question. I learned that somewhere you're supposed to have a signature question. So I have one. The last couple of times I said to the other interviewers, I said, you probably know it by now because you've listened to the other podcast. And everyone says, no, I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm pretty sure you're not ready for it, which is great. Which is great. I'm not ready for it. So here's a couple of (laughs) moments of sheer clarity from Ryan Niles, the CEO of Niles Industrial Coatings. The first thing he said that jammed out really high to me was get confidence early. At six years old, five years old, somebody had strapped some skis on and probably skied between somebody's legs forever and then somebody just let him go down the hill and before you know it, he's jumping on a lift and skiing at the age of six. And this is like having confidence in something about yourself early on was truly a part of his story today. He also mentioned grit and determination he said, maybe I've had some ADD or some dyslexia back when I was a kid. I always had to work hard, had to study hard, don't like reading. I, I struggled. And every time he mentions it, he is, but I had the grit and the grind. I'm not sure as a value system, uh, we're learning that today. If I'm watching that emerge in the kids today, millennials got labeled, you know, in a negative way years ago. I don't buy into the label. I think I've met plenty of people with grit and determination but you can't underestimate the power of it. And he mentioned it several times. He also said something that is a guideline for any other CEOs and who are running companies. He actually meets with everybody who joins the company. Now, once you're at 10,000 employees, that might be a little hard, but he will set aside the time to welcome everyone, set the tone. He does attend at least half of the safety meetings or 25% of the safety meetings that are being held to his company every single week. So he's there. Where he is, he's underscoring. So if you're a CEO, what you do sets the tone of what's important. He mentioned for anybody who's stuck with a boss who isn't the most fun to work for and maybe burdens you with mistakes and doesn't release you to let you fly, take a look at the whole company and determine whether or not you're in a great company. And if you are, Bide your time and see if you can find a place to talk to others and get it to a promotion to another group or another department. But if the company itself doesn't value entrepreneurship and freedom to be innovative and creative, you might want to vote with your feet. He also gave a great plug for Lululemon line shorts. I have to confess, this is the first time I heard that Lululemon had products for men. So I'm very, very happy. I'll, I'll, I'll I'm going to have to check it out. But what the point he was making was, was fantastic. And I'm going to underscore it. Change is hard. And we all have built in rigid, I don't want to change voices. And he, for weeks and weeks and weeks, didn't want to try a pair of shorts because they were different from what he had known. And he was had his 10-year-old college and high school shorts, comfort pocket, the actual change. And he said it this way, I needed to take six seconds to try it. And then I try them on, find they fit, I'll work out. And I realize it was a great thing to do. And the last one, the cost of trust might include somebody letting you down. 
So the question is, are you the kind of person who's going to make that compromise your trust when you go in, or are you going to trust everybody at face value first time, every time? And if they do break your trust, is it a break of character or a break of some competency? If a competency you can teach and you can train. If it's character, that's a bigger problem. But lead with your trust, positive intention. I mean, that's a ton of stuff from you, bud, and I I knew I would get it, so thank you for that. So here's your question. How old are you now? 44. 44, somewhere in the halftime of life. Let's assume you make it to be 100, so it's a good time for reflection. Imagine standing here today at the age of 44 and turn around and look back down the path of your life and see yourself as a 23-year-old Ryan Niles. Knowing what you know right now, what advice would you have given to the 23-year-old Ryan if you'd had a chance? That was two years before I started the business. But I'd say once I started the business, just be patient. When you've got good values and you've got a good system, it's going to work out. Be patient. And, and I'm just a big believer, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. But you got to be at work when luck happens. So if you're home sitting on the couch, it's not going to you know, do it. So be patient, be at work, work hard, and, and it's going to play out. Had some really hard years, but man, the last last eight or nine years have been really fun, really fun, really had a lot of impact on people. And that's so rewarding when you can really help people. So, but I think for me, it was just, I was always so impatient to do everything, want to do everything right this second. This is another theme that I'm hearing from the interviews and I'm hoping all the listeners are get this. If you're down there in the, in the early phases of life in your mid twenties or early thirties, patience is actually a part of it. And if you keep that grit and determination and hard work and the values are in the right place, it'll pay off. But being patient is part of the equation. And if you could have when you were 23, maybe you might have listened to today's Ryan and just chilled a little bit better than you did back then. Well, that's about it for today. For sheer clarity, I want to thank you, Ryan Niles. What a terrific time to spend with you and to learn from you. You downloaded a bazillion things that are useful to the listeners. Moments of sheer clarity, as always, come from great leaders. And uh, I think we just talked to one of them. So thank you for that. For everyone else, I'd like you to tune in at SheerClarity.com where you'll get plenty of information about leadership by attraction. Stay tuned for our next episode. We'll have another great interview coming up next week. And until then, stay self-aware. Take care. Mm